Welcome to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation podcast. I'm Vicky Tung, the Programme Manager for Futures and Innovation here at the Centre. Our annual innovation report brings into focus innovations that can benefit international civil society organisations and also shows in turn how these organisations are benefiting society in challenging or complex contemporary contexts. This podcast episode forms part of our 2020 edition on civil society innovation and urban inclusion, highlighting how a range of organisations are working in cities around the world to deliver inclusive solutions for whole communities or particularly marginalised or vulnerable groups of residents. In each of these podcast case stories, we really want to lift the lid on these innovations and hear directly from the people at the heart of designing and delivering them. really pleased to be joined by Joe Muturi, the national leader of Mungano Wa Wanavijiji, the National Federation of Slum Dwellers in Kenya. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much, Vicky. I've been looking forward to this and I'm happy to be here. We're happy to have you. So to start with, please could you explain who is Mungano and what do you do? So Mungano Wanavijiji is just means in Swahili Federation of Kenya Slum Dwellers. We are the biggest social movement in Kenya. We work in 21 counties out of 47. Mungano came about in the late 80s as a reaction to the very massive forced evictions and uh, demolitions that were happening in former settlements. So Mungano came together, activists came together in these informal settlements just to challenge and to stop the evictions. As time went by, the movement started mobilizing itself. And at the moment, we are in 21 counties. The issues that we look at are basically secure land tenure. We also look at issues to do with poverty eradication. We also advocate for affordable housing, decent affordable housing. And we also advocate for services to people who live in informal settlements. So we have a number of programs that are run across the 21 counties. So the other thing I just should mention that we are some members of the Slam Dwellers International. And since May, I've been the chair of Slam Dwellers International. The, how we do it in terms of, and what differentiates us from other organizations, it, we mobilize women in villages, in settlements, in all these slums, in formal markets, even in some parts of rural areas where people don't have secure tenure, they don't have title for their land. As members of Slam Dwellers International, we do this using various tools. One of them is to organize women cooperatives, women collectives around daily savings, around uh, data collection, mapping, enumeration. And at the moment, we are one of the few organizations that has an up-to-date status of informal settlements in the Republic. So the other thing is that we also advocate and pushing for very strong partnership with city, with local governments, city governments and national governments. And this, we believe, forging these partnerships have been able for us to achieve some key milestones. So we are one of these organizations that instead of just sitting and pointing what is wrong with the city, what is not being delivered, we often come up with alternative solutions and opening up dialogues and negotiations with the city, national and local governments. Thanks, Maturi. And I think that's really going to be demonstrated well by the project and the initiative that we're going to talk about now, focusing on in this, uh, in this interview. So we're going to look at the Mukuru Special Planning Area, or SPA, which has been a very 
significant partnership between Mungano and the Nairobi city and a number of other partners. Could you tell us what was the big idea behind the SPA and what your role as Mungano has been in the process, please? So the big idea around the SPA initially in the 90s with the now defunct Nairobi City Council because we moved from from council, now we have counties. In the 90s, we had an MOU with then the Nairobi City Council, create some pockets of informal settlements as special planning areas. I think we did that in four villages and we demonstrated to uh, the city and the government. It was one of our learning projects where we upgraded a number of slums within in situ upgrading. So for Mukuru, in the year 2012, we started receiving within our offices, a lot of slum dwellers within Mukuru are coming, telling us that they have these eviction notices. And I think we had almost 24 eviction notices. And basically the people who own these parcels of land were telling the slum dwellers, you pay me 60 million or within a month you get out of here. So we thought probably this is where we intervened. So one of the things was we to do and this is to create a resistance on the ground and the resistance was uh, led by me. We organized communities around Mukuru number one just to first of all resist. And when it comes to eviction, the first line of defense is usually the community itself. You cannot turn to the courts. As you are all aware that the courts in some parts of Africa, like here in Kenya, we have different set of laws that work for one work for the rich and the other one work for the poor. And I don't think poor people have ever gotten justice in our legal systems. So was to organize and to stop these evictions. We did that. We had demonstrations. In fact, one of the parcels of land was being sold by a bank. Uh, somebody had charged uh, his title deed to a bank. So we resisted, we went to town, we disrupted the auction. The other thing was to go to court. The court gave observatory orders, that conservatory orders that nobody should be evicted. We maintain status quo until uh, this matter is heard. So what we did, we knew we couldn't get justice because all these people had titles to these parcels of land. Most of them are two and a half acres, four acres. But the court, why we went to court and to get these orders was to buy us time to continue with them mobilizing to continue with the organizing communities. So from that, we started now doing research. We pushed the county. We partnered with a number of organizations, the Robbie University. We also partnered with the University of California and University of Manchester, just to understand how, what are the dynamics of Mukuru in regards to services, in regards to land, in regards to the economy, in regards to who controls Mukuru, we realize that we have Nairobi water, which is has the mandate of reticulating water in Nairobi. But this water, when it goes to Mukuru, is organized. Initially, we used to call them cartels, but we are told we should call them informal service providers. <laughs> so there is Kenya power, which is supposed to distribute power. But we realize when the power gets there, even some of the power, most of the power that was in Mukuru was illegal. We had people going to the high voltage power lines, connecting them, distributing the power. So we found out a lot of things. So we look at the issues of flooding. We look at the issues of how flooding affects the livelihoods, schools, and all these challenges which comes after the floods. We look at um, all these are connected also to climate change issue. With this report, we are able to push the county to declare Bukuru as a special planning area. Because within the law, 
and within the county's policies. A county has a right to declare a place a special planning area given its challenges. So luckily for us, Mukuru was declared a special planning area around 2017. So the next thing we said, the county approached us and told us we don't have the capacity to pull this off. We don't have the expertise to pull this off. So our role was then to look at, given the report and the situation that was there, was to mobilize uh, civil societies and organizations that work within the Mukuru area. We looked at what happens. If you look, for example, like a place like Ibera, which is another slum, there are a number of NGOs. We usually say that uh, for every family in Kibera, there is an NGO. Yeah? But despite all these NGOs within Kibera, Kibera hasn't changed. It still remains the same. So we challenge this organization. Instead of you doing your little thing at that corner, providing one water tap, the other guy on that corner is putting up a toilet. Why don't we harness our expertise, our resources, our skills, and come up with this plan? So initially, even the number of organizations who are more than where the 42 that ended up working in Mokuru. Because some of them came for different reasons. Some of them thought probably there's money to be made in this. But when they realized that because the challenge, we challenge them, you are bringing in your expertise. You have to mobilize your own resources. And the other thing was, this is not an NGO plan. This is a plan for the people of Mukuru. This is a plan for the county. So we are supporting the county come up with them. So our role as Mungano, SDI Kenya, and Akiba Machinery Trust. There's an organization that is our federation fund. It's a social fund that gives a small loans to slum dwellers for businesses, livelihoods, and uh, projects. So the three of us, Mungano, we are called the Kenyan Alliance. There's Mungano, the movement. Then we have two organs. We have Slum Dwellers International Kenya, which is the technical supports in the mapping, data collection, social. Then we have the fund, which is Akiba Machinery Trust. So the three of us, our role was to, number one, mobilize, organize, coordinate all these other organizations. The other thing, we pushed the county and we said, because it's a county plan, the county had to lead this process. Please could you situate this in the context of some of the wider challenges in Kenya or Nairobi around affordable housing? I'll give you my city. Kenya population so far, I think we are around 50. We are looking at the city of Nairobi. My city has around 4.5 plus minus people living in the city of Nairobi. So one of the things we realized is that, because it, I told you we have an up-to-date uh, data, is that three quarters of these Nairobi residents live in informal settlements. They live in slums. So if you are talking about 4.5, almost 3 million live in informal settlements. So if you look at Ukuru alone, the 680-something acres, we counted almost over 100,000 households. So if you look at, in terms of densities, if you look at the household numbers, we are looking at a family of between three to five, because you'll find in a single room, there's a father, mother, and probably three children. There's a lot of young men who come from the rural villages, because Mokuru basically is an industrial area. They come to Nairobi to look for employment. So you'll find just to survive, they live like four or six of them in a shack. So in terms of numbers, we are talking a population of over 400,000 
basically. Mostly 70% of these Nairobi residents, like I said, live in informal settlements. Most of them and the housing conditions are deplorable. It's a 10 by 10 shack built with corrugated iron sheets, no toilet, no running water, basically no services. And one of the reasons that the city was saying that we cannot invest in informal settlements because these lands, people have titles to this land. We cannot invest on private land. And one of the reasons we chose to push the county to declare, it's one of the strategies. For us, we are addressing the land question. So if you look at all these other poor conditions, there's something else that probably you'll see on our papers called the poverty penalty, where poor people pay higher for services than people, than the rich people, basically, than the rich neighborhoods. Probably for, I don't know, in terms of numbers, I hear... For one, I don't know how many cubic of liters. People in affluent neighborhoods pay 50 cents. But if you go to informal settlements, they pay 20 shillings for a 20-liter jerry can. If you look at power, supply, electricity, per month, the electricity is very poor quality, and they pay between 300 to 500 shillings per month for that poor quality electricity. It's the kind of electricity where you just watch your TV or charge your phone and one bulb, if you decide to iron your shirt, the power will trip and it will go off. And uh, usually, every now and then, there are fires. If you go to Google and Google Mukuru fire, every month at least there is a fire brought by poor connection, somebody was electrocuted, all those things. So if you look at all this, these are the challenges that we push the county to declare Mukuru as a special planning area. You describe Mukuru as an area with special challenges, but also special opportunities in this whole process. Could you talk a bit about those as well, please? So in regards to opportunities, and that's one of the things we were looking at in terms of um, usually when you're proposing something, somebody, the first reaction to somebody will be, what is it in for me? So for us to, to show the county what is it for them, you have water running, being controlled by gangs or cartels or informal service providers. The county doesn't make even a single penny. We have Kenya Power providing electricity. The electricity is tapped illegally. So what is it indeed for them? It's an opportunity to collect. Then we have the structure owners who are invested in these structures. They usually collect between 2,000 to 3,000 shillings a month tax-free. The city does not get any revenue in terms of taxes. Uh, the government does not get any revenue. These are people who work the billion shilling industry. So for us was to show this is a place where with the improvements there's these investments that you can make. This is what is it there for you. You can subsidize for some things. If you find the kind of business that goes on within Mokuru, the commerce, the trade, if you connect Mokuru to the city, to other areas, there are a lot of opportunities for people to invest in housing and all those. Thanks. So one of the inclusion dimensions that we're looking at in the report is this kind of integrated systems-wide approach that looks at the whole system level. Could you talk about that for the Mikuru SPA process? So one of the things that we usually do here, we, we used to do, and I think that's why we are saying, saying this is a precedent-setting event for us. I think we have been doing all these things at on a very small scale, on a community of 300 upgrade, bring in water, bring in toilets. And I think there was a time everybody was talking about scaling up. And I think even when we started this process, a lot of organizations even 
international organizations whom I'm not in liberty to mention were a bit skeptical in regards to, and they were telling us, why don't you pick on something that you can be able to manage, like a toilet, put a water tap there? But for us, I think we challenge ourselves. Nobody has ever planned for an informal settlement of this size, let alone even a city or a national government. And for us, we realized what are our capacities. Number one is the recognition of our capacities. We are good at community mobilizing, organizing, collecting data, and communication. So that's the role we undertook. Then we look at other institutions who have different capacities. Number one, I told you, we agreed that the county will lead this process. So we looked at all the departments within, and we identified seven departments within uh, the county. We are looking at uh, the infrastructure departments, the land and housing. We are looking at the education department, the health department, and we kind of created consortiums around those. So we looked at other civil society organizations and institutions that have got capacities in line with all these departments. For example, we had organizations working on water. So we mobilized all these organizations and we told them their mandate within this consortium, based on the research, is to go deeper, get do more research and provide solutions and work with the community to provide solutions. So we had local universities coming on board. We worked with three universities. We also worked with two international universities. And I think we had a lot of support also from SDI as a network in terms of providing the funding for some of this work. And the city was also helpful. The city also paid for some consultative meetings with stakeholders. And we had given ourselves the mandate that only people who save and belong to the federation can talk about issues of their informal settlement. But one of the things we realized is that there's a lot we are missing. You will find in a settlement of 5,000 people, you'll find only 500 to 1,000 are actual savers. So we, we realized that we are missing the mark. We realized that there are a lot of people in these informal settlements that want to transform, that want to change, that want to do something about their communities, but they are not necessarily savers. So one of the things we borrowed as a network within SDA of learning and sharing, we borrowed something from Uganda where they have dialogues, they have discussions at the local level, at the city level, and at the national level where they bring all stakeholders together. So we realized we can't work with Savers alone. We had to bring other activists, CBOs that work with Mokuru, and then was to organize just to make sure that there will be maximum participation. Because part of the challenge we knew within the law, people can challenge this process, that there was no active public participation. But then again, we came also to realize that the threshold for public participation is so low here in our country. So we wanted to set up another threshold. One of the things we realized that the members of the county assemblies, people who are called councillors, the public participation they usually do, they just do one meeting, approve everything that they have done, and that qualifies as a public participation. So we organized, we followed the 10 households model, and we identified people from these 10 households to sit in the different consortiums. You'll find a representative sitting on the water consortium, another one sitting on the health consortium, another one was working with the planning consortium, another one was working with the legal consortium. What we had anticipated happened. I think uh, last week, uh, some structure owners had sued because there's no public participation. 
And I think we realized even one consortium, just one consortium, had over 300 consultative meetings with everybody. So we made sure that there are forums where youth can talk, where the structure owners can talk, where even the cartels that control the water, the electricity, the services, the garbage collection can also have their input in this plan to make sure that it's all inclusive. And every time we have to remind them, this is a Mukuru plan, this is a county plan, but also part of the challenges we also knew. And that's why even a lot of people were very skeptical to fund this process, was that what they were looking at the end product. So for them, the idea of we are coming up with a plan, a plan that we are not sure whether it will be implemented or not, was not appealing to them. But a few understood for there to be changes. And I think the traction we got from other countries like the city of Durban, we looked at Zambia, Sierra Leone, gave this a lot of traction where they wanted to know how to pull off an SPA. And some of them were challenged themselves. How do we also do things at a city, at a, the bigger picture? And it's something that happens in many informal settlements where we tend to look inwardly. We tend to look at what are we lacking inside. But then again, the challenge was how do we start now connecting Mukuru to the city, to other areas, to other neighborhoods? How do we link in terms of bringing in water, bringing in sewer, bringing in electricity that is affordable, that is safe, that is sustainable. So all these things was the mandate of uh, the planners to put up to how do you connect, put up roads and all the infrastructure that was required to link Mukuru to the outside. Please, could you talk more about how you organised the whole community of more than 100,000 households so that more than 5,000 people could take part in the planning forums? One of the things that we usually do is that we don't bring consultants or outsiders or university students to collect our information. We usually train the local community in skills. We give them skills in mapping, in data collection. We train them how to collect information using tablets and all these apps that are done by our professionals. So one of the things is that we also, in regards to what I was telling you about how we clustered, the government came up with this model of just to enhance security, that for every 10 households, people must identify their neighbor's pattern. We call it in Swahili, Nyumbakumi. Basically, it means 10 households. So these 10 households come together and they identify one leader within those 10 households. So our rulers use that model. So let me just come in and read this now as the maths can start to get a bit complicated. So these 10 household representatives each formed a cell of which there were 10,000 cells across Mukuru. 10 of these cells then formed subclusters, so with each subcluster then representing 100 households. There were almost 1,000 of these subclusters. And then 80 of these subclusters together formed a segment, with one segment representing each of 13 villages within Mukuru. And community consultation was either at subcluster, i.e. 100 household level, or higher segment or village level? So we had a number, as you've rightly pointed, we had almost 5,000 people participating in the plan. So we recruited also a team of 450 young people with people who basically can operate their phone. Because we moved digital, we initially used to use the pen and paper to do the data collection. We also trained 450 youths. Their role, we had a team that was collecting information there was a team that was working with the village elders just to pass information. 
this is what we are doing and why we are doing it. There was a team that was also, their work was to do the GPS mapping. And basically that team was just to collect, to profile. Uh, basically a profile is just to look like an overview of the settlement. How many houses, how many structures, how many toilets, how many water points, how many business communities, how many schools. We had another team that was also looking out on the actual data collection, filling information on the tablet. So the other thing we also did was to also organize a lot of exchanges just to expose the Mokuru people. All these projects that we have done, we also took them to exchanges in South Africa. We took them to exchanges in Uganda just to see the community model, their settlement development forums, their city development forums and national development forums. So a kind of to look at the model of the savers will have their meeting and they'll have the benefits of being a saver, but then also to create these forums where we had everybody, savers, non-savers, Christians, Muslims, business people, civil society, bring all these stakeholders together just to talk about Mukuru. And we made sure that all these meetings were, number one, well documented in terms of everybody who attended that meeting had to put in their name and phone number. We also worked with the Know Your City. Within SDI, we have these young people who are trained as filmmakers. We had the uh, Know Your City TV, and their role was to take pictures and to do video documentation of all these meetings that were happening. You're listening to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation Podcast. This episode is part of our 2020 Innovation Report on Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion. So you, you reached this really impressive scale of community organisation to enable a really meaningful consultation process with these multi-stakeholder consortia. Mm. What do you see as the main kind of difference? What changes came out of these? Or what were the new kind of conversations which you really felt and some of the changes and more inclusive outcomes that you really would put down to this process which wouldn't otherwise have happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, something that really came out, number one, was to change the game in regards to how cities, technocrats within all these city directors, engineers, for us was to change the game, how they engage with slum dwellers. That was number one. Number two was all these civil society organizations that were doing different things, coming together, putting in their resources and their skills and their expertise to this process where there was no monetary benefit. Just last week, I think I received a letter from the office of the president thanking us for the Mokuru process. So the other game changer was that the recognition that recognition that information maps produced by slum dwellers can be credible, they can be used. The other recognition is that we have a slogan that says we are the problem, but we are the solution. Recognizing that slum dwellers are part of the solution also. And the other thing is for the, the city recognizing that the challenges within informal settlements are not challenges of the people who live there. There are challenges of everybody who lives in the city. The attitude has always been, from the government, has always been, those are uneducated, illiterate, that is their problem. They don't have water, that's because that's the way they want. And I think the recognition that this is our problem, this is our city problem, we have to figure out together, that's the other thing. And for me also, the other thing was also to train 
this is something that I don't know other civil society organizations, how they should work with slum dwellers. You know, most of the civil society organizations that we have, they are the ones who bring their agenda. They are the ones who come up with plans. They are the ones who bring all these goodies to slum dwellers. But I think the game changer with this was slum dwellers telling them, at the moment, we have this information we have collected. These are the challenges. We have the city. And we need your expertise to figure this out too. The other thing is also all this research that we do. I think there's every day somebody is doing research. And for me personally, I think the research that was done by somebody last week is the same like the one you are going today. For me, Islam the last challenge, challenging academia, universities that don't just do research in my community for the sake of research. I want you to give me something that can help improve here. I want you to give me, you, yes, you'll have information, do your paper, do your thesis, do your PhD, but I want you to give me something that can help me improve here. If it's health, what are the challenges? And I also want you to give me research that I can use. So for us, even the research we are doing with universities, it was more of a working research. In the process of collecting this information, we are also partnering with a number of organizations. We have found this is happening. And we had one organization providing toilets for, I think, four schools. We had another organization providing sanitary pads. We had another organization providing computers to schools. So for us, it was more a research that we were able to engage other school stakeholders on. Thanks. And what kind of feedback have you had or heard from the community about the integrated plan, the, the final outcome? Do they feel that it's an accurate representation of their needs and dreams as well as the kind of realities, spatial realities and etc. Of, of the area itself. One of the risks that we knew we were undertaking that these plans will might end up in the shelves of some the director of planning at county level. And it had happened for almost two years nothing moved even after the plans were I think after one year even the, after the plans that were formulated. So what happened? Look at the city how it's operating. We have a governor who is not very efficient. The other guy was so bad that we just wanted anybody. Even this guy we brought as a governor, you can read about him on YouTube. He's basically a joker. We all knew the mistakes we are making as residents. But we had it so bad with the other guy. We just wanted anybody else. So that plan didn't get implemented. You are talking about declaring Mukuru an SPA, but in terms of actual implementation... So what the president did, the president created something called the Nairobi Metropolitan Services. And he brought all these technocrats from different government ministries. And the national government took up some functions of the county government. They took up planning. They took up, I think, the health. Then the government brought in the military. He brought a military guy, a general, to be in charge of the Nairobi Metropolitan Services. As a constitutional defender, as an activist, all of us were very angry with trying to militarize the city. But it had to be a blessing in disguise. One of the things we were told that the president, when he saw the Mukuru SPA, he gave it to the general and told the general, I want you to implement this plan as it is. The SPA is one of the president's pet projects. The roads have been opened up. They are starting putting the sewer infrastructure within Mokuru. They are also providing free water within Mokuru. They have identified two public spaces, 
for hospitals to be built, and I think they have already started. But for us, the icing on the cake was when the cabinet approved for the construction of 13,000 houses within Mokuru, and they have put a budget to that. Part of the thing that the county has approached us is also to work with them in terms of identifying who will be the beneficiaries of the project when it's completed. Thanks. And how has uh, COVID-19 disrupted your community mobilisation and your work over the past several months? It has disrupted very much, especially when there were curfews. People are not saving. Some of people have resorted going back to their rural villages. We are seeing a lot of domestic violence, family breaking up, and we have seen a lot of people uh, losing their livelihoods. The other thing that we are also investigating, we have seen a lot of teenage pregnancies. We have seen a lot of people withdrawing their savings. A lot of our project, our even livelihoods loans that we had given to people, they are not repaying. So it has been very disruptive. I think it will take a little bit of time for us uh, to regroup and for things to come back to normalcy. Some people went back to their rural and they said, I'm not coming to the city again. It will need a lot of rebuilding. Also, there are also challenges, a number of organizations coming. There's also all these free things coming. Members of parliament bringing in food. And also that creates a very negative culture. People, When people are getting to use to getting handouts, it also brings something because I've worked, I think I worked in Haiti and Liberia, Haiti after the earthquake, Liberia and Sierra Leone after the war and after Ebola. And I see it creates culture of laziness when every week there's somebody bringing you freebies. So you don't have that drive, that urge, that energy, that fire to wake up and go and do something. That's now another culture and something else that we'll have to deal with. And because with the curfew, people couldn't meet, people couldn't interact. Mm. People can't meet more than, I think, the, the maximum was 10 to 15. Even when NMS started now doing the work, there was a lot of disruptions. As much as the structure owners had said that the ones who had built on the road reserve, they will remove their structures. And part of the reason why the president brought the military you know the military code of conduct is that you you shoot first, you ask questions later. And when your commander-in-chief gives you an order, so he told them implement the plan as it is. So there's been a lot of disruptions, people being uh, removed from their businesses, places, but we couldn't react because it was also our responsibility and our duty to make sure that the plan is implemented with the human face, with looking at other alternatives without any evictions. So that's something that we lost. So one of the things we want to also to re-engage now that the lockdown has been partially built is to re-engage with our mobilizers, with our Nyumbakomi, just to understand how the process is proceeding. We had a number of structure owners coming to complain even to the NMS we have been attending a lot of conflict resolution meetings where the structure owners, obviously, some of them will complain because most of them depend on their structures for livelihood. So we have to safeguard and I think we have to, we also have to look at the human rights. Even if NMS is doing all this great work, but also we must consider human rights. We have basic human rights. We must consider that everything is done with a human face and it's done properly. Yeah, so I think that's what you point out. The, the plan in itself was just one output, but it's the whole process around how that is implemented. 
So I'd like to talk about some of the innovation dimensions as well. So you've already talked about how this has been a bit of a game changer, but I'd like to explore that at two levels. So how do you feel this has disrupted the kind of system and the status quo of how things have been working? And then could you also talk a bit about how this has kind of been self-disruptive to Mungano as an organisation, please? So I'll talk at two levels. One of the things that Mungano does is to be disruptive, but disruptive in a good way is to change the game, is to change how power relations within the, the political class, the decision makers at City Hall engage with land dwellers. Instead of seeing them as beneficiaries of services or favors of services, it's also to look at slum dwellers and people who live with as key stakeholders in matters of the city. It's also to look at them as partners in bringing development to their informal settlements. On the other side also, within the communities, it's also the recognition that we can't just be sitting with our hands in the pocket, waiting for things to form from the sky or waiting for the city to bring this or that. We have to be on the end for offensive. We have to go get these things ourselves. One of the things I usually tell people, when we started this, we didn't know, we were not clear. We knew we wanted to do an SPA. And I think we, know, we knew the end game. But how to get to the end game, we didn't know how. So every week, we, as the situation changes, we were adapting and strategizing as the station changes. And I think for us, it's also been a learning experience. It has been, we have learned a lot. I think we have built a lot of leaders within the community. We have built a lot of skills within the community and even in civil society organization. The game changer is also how development, how development is kind of implemented there. I don't think we are still there because one of the things that also came out, the government is implementing this as much as they are giving the young people within the Mokuru labor to do this or that. They are the ones who are doing the roads. They are the ones who are doing the trenches. But I think we need to see more being done in terms of empowering communities, in terms of them getting these contracts to do roads, to put in infrastructure, as opposed to just young people getting wages or labor for a day, which is not actually very sustainable. And also a game changer for Mungano as an organization. Oh, I think tremendously. I think tremendously. I think there have been a lot of skills gained. There have been a lot of capacity built. And I think also the confidence that if we can pull this off, there's nothing we can't pull off. And I think we are looking at this, how do we move and probably also look at other counties. We have a number of two or three counties which have come up that also wants to pull an SPA. But also, one of the things is that this process was funded by donors, 100%. But this time, you are telling them, I, we have done a lot of freebies. This time, you have to pay for data collection. You have to pay for this or that. So in terms of also us as an organization, I've seen a lot of young people growing, or a lot of capacity being built. I think uh, looking at different ways, alternative ways, alternative models, the realization also of the more you learn, the more you realize you need to learn more. I think they have been that across the board. Thanks, Maturi. I want to touch on this scalability question with you as well. Obviously, you've described really well how you've brought in learning from other parts of the world into your conceptualization and your process. 
Some of your colleagues recently put out a research paper with some of your academic partners as well, which struck a note of caution about the Mercurio SPA experience as being very context specific, so shouldn't be treated as a best practice model for replication elsewhere. But they did also kind of flag that there were three lessons of wider significance. So before scaling upwards and outwards, it's essential to scale deep. If you do scale upwards and outwards, it does require bold new partnerships and that communities should drive participatory planning processes and outcomes. But could you share your ideas around scalability and perhaps what this might look like and some of the wider lessons that you feel the process contributes to share with the wider SDI network as well, please? I think one of the things that I told you this gained traction from other countries was the different way of working with communities in regards to how you organize and how you deepen the process. Number one, when you talk about deepening the process, the committee had to fully understand what an SPA means, what it entails. We had to take them through a process even before we started bringing in the partners for them to really, really understand. Because at the end of the day, they are the ones who are integrating with the community. They are the ones who are interacting with the community. And I think for me, the lesson is that in terms of now, the scaling up, if you look at all these SDI countries, was that um, number one, I don't believe that this process can be replicated. Number two, I believe there are lessons. We are not saying for everybody to pull up a Mokuru SPA. And I told you initially, even when, when we started this, we were making things up as we went along. Things kept changing. I think it's a process that can be scaled. So the other thing I, I, I was telling you about was that a lot of countries within SDI are comfortable doing their small 20 households projects, toilet here, toilet there. Mukuru was a game changer. Even for us, moving from a settlement of 3,000, providing houses, not even 3,000, providing houses for a community of 300 people to move to 100,000, I think that was a game changer. So there's a lot of lessons that can be learned. And I think every week we have to do something on Mokuru. So for me, somebody saying that it's something that which cannot be replicated, something that can be replicated, but it can be made better in terms of people being very clear. So the other thing, the other game changer, because of Mokuru, the government, the city also declared Madare and Kibera as special planning areas. And for us, for people like us who work in formal settlements, we know it's not a revolution that you are going to transform the lives of every slum dweller in an instant. For me, I'm content that people in Mukuru now have water, clean water, free of charge. They are going to be connected to the city sewer. They are going to have uh, roads that connect them to the city. And for me, 13,000 slum dwellers getting housing, I'm fine with that. And I think what this really shows is the scale of ambition that you can have and the scale of confidence that you can pull off in, in doing some of these things as much as the process yeah. itself. Yeah. So my final question, what kind of wider lessons or key takeaways do you have for other organisations working in complex urban settings? I think in organisations uh, working in complex, uh, that I've said this even internationally, is that you have to look at the bigger picture. You have to understand your capacities. You have to understand your expertise. You have also to understand it's not a must that you lead. It's not a must that you do things alone. And I think also one of the challenges I have with these holier-than-thou human rights organizations that are always pointing the problem. And the thing I tell people and people who document whatever challenges that in informal settlements, 
the people you are telling, the government, the director, the general, the, the governor, they know. They know the situation in formal settlement. Some of them were born and raised there. So let's move on beyond just complaining. Let's move beyond pointing out what is wrong. Yeah, let's be more pragmatical. Let's provide solutions. Let's provide alternatives. Let's work with other stakeholders to provide solutions, not to complain. Thanks, Materi. Very powerful message to end the interview on. Uh, so very finally, what's next for this work and your work in Makuru? And how can we keep in touch with your progress? We're also doing a report on the situation so far since the implementation started. So my team is kind of putting together looking at COVID, the disruptions, looking at the implementation, the positives and the negatives, the lessons that are coming out, the challenges that are coming out. Because as you are all, if you are aware that if you solve one problem, you create 10 more. So it's to look at and to anticipate what are the likely challenges that are going to come up with this new development? What are the challenges that are going to come up? What are the opportunities that are going to come up? At the community level, these are the organizations that have worked with this community for all these years. What are the opportunities that are there in regards to? We are going to do a piece, and probably after we compile, I can send it to you. Thanks very much. Your team is doing a great job of documenting the process and the learning, and we'll make sure mm. that we continue to follow that and link to it this interview and the report as well. So thank you very much. You've been really generous with your time and it's been a fascinating interview to hear you reflect on the whole process and we wish you very well in your next steps. Thank you very much. You can find links to more information and resources on both this innovation case study and the Centre's 2020 Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion Report in the podcast description. Many thanks to our producer, Julia Pazos, for all your hard work in making this podcast series happen. This podcast is kindly supported by the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung and its Strong Cities 2030 initiative, promoting global collaboration and knowledge sharing for sustainable urban development.